You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Um, if you have a Bible, you, we're going to be in Colossians 4 today, uh, verses 2 through 6. We're going to walk through that together. But if you don't, no worries. We'll have that up on the screen for you. Um, and as we continue on, I just want to throw out a question. I'm sure a lot of you don't spend a ton of time thinking about the Louisiana Purchase probably, right? Like a lot of you guys, it's probably not like your, your hobby is studying the Louisiana Purchase. Maybe you haven't thought of it since high school. But, you know, uh, it's really interesting if you think about the Louisiana Purchase, it's a moment that profoundly shaped America and the future of America. Uh, Louisiana Purchase was was a massive land that incorporated lots of parts of Texas and Oklahoma and all through up the border to Canada. It was about the size of the United States at the time back in 1803. And uh, at the time, it was under French rule. So Napoleon, who was the emperor of France, he was often finding himself in skirmishes and wars over in Europe. And in order to continue to fund these wars, he was... He had a cash flow problem, shall we say. So he was tied up for cash. And unlike Jerome Powell, he couldn't print more money. So he had to sell something. He had to figure out what he was going to do in this situation. Thomas Jefferson, president of the United States at the time, he was well aware. He was attentive to his situation. He was watchful of what was going on in America. And he knew of this territory. He was eager to acquire it. And so the moment comes and Napoleon is in a situation of desperation to continue to fund his wars and Jefferson is ready to strike. He's ready to seize the moment. And in 1803, Thomas Jefferson, on behalf of the United States, buys the Louisiana Territory from France for $15 million, which would effectively double the size of the United States and forever shape the course and change the trajectory of our country, still having ripple effects for us even today and the expansion of the United States on this continent. But there was a moment, there was a window where this deal was available. Napoleon was desperate, Thomas Jefferson was attentive, and he striked while the iron was hot. You see, friends, to buy something, you often have to be watchful, you have to be attuned, paying attention, and then you have to have the resources to capitalize to make your move. Uh, We have a phrase, we even say as as Americans, often in our culture, it's it's an old phrase of carpe diem, which means to seize the day, to realize the opportunity in front of you. And many of us, we realize life is made up of a series of moments and we have to seize those moments. And Paul, Paul wants to exhort us this morning, he wants us to see that there are moments for us to capitalize on. There are moments for us to seize. And like Thomas Jefferson or any great bargain, you have to first be attentive. You have to often wait for the right circumstances. And then you have to be ready to capitalize. And so here's a little bit of our context. Paul, if you haven't been with us for most of of Colossians, he finds himself in prison. He's writing in prison. So he's not, you know, at the four seasons having a holiday. He's suffering. And yet he seems increasingly empowered by his situation. He's not defeated by it, but rather he's invigorated to continue to share his message. He may be physically enchained, but he wants to continue to proclaim what it means to be spiritually free. Paul is seizing a moment. He's not being bogged down by his circumstances, but rather he's attentive to greater realities. So start off by looking at verse two with me. Paul gives us a general encouragement toward prayer. 
He's reminding us, he's saying, first, I, I realize that prayer is hard. And as I talk to a lot of Christians, and a lot of us around this church, I think this is an area where we can often feel very defeated, sometimes worn out. Some of us can be, feel very stalled out, even when it comes to prayer. And I feel like one of those areas, like, does it even make a difference? So Paul's encouraging us to pray. He realizes circumstances can be hard. He realizes situations can be overwhelming. But he's saying inside of your prayer, you're making some profound theological statements about what you believe about your identity and what you believe about reality. You see, first and foremost, prayer attunes us to greater spiritual realities going on around us. That you and I are not just caught up in this naturalistic world that's filled with one circumstance, one random ordinary event to the next, but rather the Lord is often at, w- at work in ways that are unseen by us and in the ways that we cannot even often comprehend or appreciate or understand. You see, friends, when, when we neglect prayer, it's like thinking our enemy, the devil, is weak when really he's like a prowling lion. It's believing that God is absent or that he's abandoned us. And it's a declaration that we can handle things on our own. And when we do pray, it's a reminder of our blood-bought identity. You see, prayer is not just supposed to be a flare gun for the desperate or room service for the indulgent, but rather it's the confidence of those who are adopted. You, you Christian, if you are in Christ, you need to realize that you have the king's ear, that you are the apple of his eye, that when you pray, God is listening that God is able, that God is mighty to save. And even though your circumstances might preach otherwise, Paul is proclaiming and reminding you that God is listening, that God is for you. And you don't have to sacrifice in order to pray for your sin because Jesus has already sacrificed for you. You don't have to atone for your messes because Jesus has already atoned for you. Rather, he's entreating you to come into the throne room and pray to your king, to your dad. What do you believe? Do you believe that God is near? Do you believe that God is in the midst of your circumstances right now? I know a lot of us walked into this room with all sorts of realities and pressures and stresses and anxiety. Do you believe that God is in the midst of that? One of the things that I find most encouraging that scripture teaches us throughout its entire narrative is that God is not often most concerned with changing our circumstances, but changing us through our circumstances. That he's using those moments that can feel altogether exasperating or tedious or difficult or exhausting to shape, to create a neediness, to create a dependency upon us. And so what does it look like for us to recapture a sense of anticipation and awe, a sense of won't he do it? Won't God show up? Won't he move mountains? That childlike wonder and awe. Pay attention to that word Paul uses. He says, be watchful. Be watchful in your prayer. What is watchful meant to say? Well, well, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert hunter. Um, I haven't done a lot of hunting. I'm about as good at it as Dick Cheney. Um, I don't hunt a lot. But I do know if you go hunting, you've got to pay attention. You've got to wait. You've got to watch. And you've got a moment to pull the trigger. And when you think of your prayer life, does it create in you a sense of anticipation, a sense of alertness? I've got, now God's going to move. That this is the same God that rose Jesus from the dead. This is the same God at Pentecost. This is the same God that inspired Paul to write this letter 
It's the same God that rose you from the dead if you are a Christian. And this God's not done. This God will see you through to your glorification. There's got to be a sense of expectancy and anticipation. Friends, I would encourage many of us to pray much bigger prayers and then go, won't he do it? God, I believe in you. William Carey, the founder of Modern Missions, he said this, he put it this way, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Paul has a robust expectancy that God is going to show up, that this God he's praying to is able to move mountains, that he's able to take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh, that he's able to take broken, lost, wayward people like you and me and bring us home to family. And then Paul goes on. He wants us to know first and foremost that he needs prayer. This is always so encouraging for me. In verse 3, Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us. Isn't that such an interesting phrase? Paul, mighty, invincible Paul at times is saying, I need prayer. He's saying, I'm needy. Uh, You know, all these things, these miraculous, heroic tales and stories of what Paul accomplishes and what he does, he still needs the Lord. How much more so do you and I often just be ready, be willing and ready to confess our neediness? That when someone asks us, can I pray for you? We actually, with a, a sense of joy and eagerness, latch onto that and say, yes, please, I need prayer. I need you to pray for me. Paul's realizing in order for this mission to go forward, in order for this gospel to go forward, he needs prayer. But what does Paul want prayer for? Well, I'm glad you asked. He goes on in verse three and he says, that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So Paul is praying for, for open doors. He realizes that as much as we can come up with the right language and the right techniques and the right strategies and the right buildings and all of that, we need God to go before us, don't we? It is God the one who saves. It's God the one who regenerates. It's God the one who initiates. And then we respond. So Paul's saying, God, I want you to open doors. I want you to go before me. If if these moments of being able to proclaim and share the gospel are going to happen, God, I need you to go before me. I need you to cultivate the soil. Paul is saying, God, I'm not even interested in you opening the prison door. I want you to open doors to people's hearts. Think about that. Where is Paul's focus still? What's he preoccupied? Is he preoccupied by his freedom or is he preoccupied with his message? Paul realizes that in order for a dead person to go alive, uh, come alive, as he writes about in Ephesians 2, that this is the work of God alone, that only God can save And so Paul goes on to say, what is it that he wants an open door to proclaim? Well, we just read it a second ago. He said, God, I want to declare the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. What's he saying? Well, this is just another way of Paul saying the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Because what was mysterious for for the prophets and in the Old Testament has now been made clear. What we wondered of how the Messiah would look and where redemption would come from and how God would save his people is now made perfectly clear in Jesus Christ. He wants to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And friends, I just want to say, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you haven't heard the good news of the gospel, you need to know that you have a God who loves you. You have a God who cares about you. And that this is a broken, messed up world. And that every single one of us has stepped into things that we shouldn't have done. And we've also sinned by things, by not doing things that we should have done. And we've looked at God and we said, not your way, but rather my way. Not your kingdom, but my kingdom. 
And what did Jesus do? Jesus gets off the throne of heaven and he comes down into this universe. He takes the longest trip in history and he comes and walks amongst us. And he lives a life that we could not live and he dies a death that altogether belonged to us and then he rises three days later so that all of creation would be redeemed, including you. That's the God we're talking about. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you're looking for deals that are altogether all the more extravagant and amazing and wonderful than even the Louisiana Purchase or anything you'll ever buy on eBay or at a garage sale, look no further than the gospel. The gospel is the dinner bell of salvation. Jesus is ringing it and saying, I've got grace upon grace for those who will come and get it. So come and get it. What are you waiting for? Why would you hold on to your pride? Why would you hold on to your shame? Why would you hold on to your sin when Jesus says, I'll take all of that and I'll give you my righteousness and I'll bring you home to my family and adopt you? Whatever you're trying to satisfy yourself with right now, whatever you're trying to do to fill up your life, to give you meaning, to give you purpose, to give you satisfaction, I promise you, it's a broken cistern. It's an empty well. There is no life. But there is life forevermore in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the message that Paul's saying, I'm going to give everything to share this. I'll stay in prison. I'll do whatever it takes as long as I get to share this good news. It's the motivating thing that animates all of Paul's ministry. Paul's excited about these open doors and he's excited about proclaiming and declaring the mysteries of Christ. Friends, who in your world do you need to proclaim the mysteries of Christ to? The good news of the gospel we live in a broken world that's more desperate for good news than ever. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he says this about evangelism. He says, what is the motive for evangelizing? There are in fact two motives that should spur us constantly to evangelize. The first is love for God and concern for his glory. The second is love for man and concern for his welfare. And concern for his welfare. Think about that for a second. Here's an application I want to really highlight for us. Coming off a pandemic, a very contentious and agitated 2020 and world that we live in. A spiritual muscle that I have found that has atrophied and weakened in many across the American church is one of evangelism. You know, as we've stepped back into norms and trying to figure out what are the new rhythms of life and what does group look like, what does work look like, what does community look like, all of these things, and, and our world's also filled with angst and rage and frustration and all of that, it becomes so easy to get complacent and comfort and quiet about the mysteries of Christ. It just does. You know, when you think about sharing your faith and stepping into those moments and proclaiming the mysteries of Christ and the good news of the gospel to a world around you, and I'm not saying in a, a judgmental way, I'm actually saying in a way where you're telling other beggars where there's bread. But that, that's a muscle that needs to be exercised. And a pandemic puts you and I often in a place where those muscles atrophy. So what does it look like for us to, uh, to flex those muscles, to work out those muscles, to use them again? I'm always so encouraged by, by the book of Acts. In Acts 4, as the church is just beginning to face all sorts of persecution and difficult circumstances, they don't pray for relief. They pray for boldness. And maybe for some of us, the prayer we need to have right now when it comes to declaring the mysteries of Christ, to sharing the good news of the gospel, is for a deeper, renewed sense of boldness. 
Because friends, we also live in a world, in a context, you need to realize America in 2021 is an abnormal place, historically speaking. Relatively speaking, this is a weird reality you and I live in. It's a great minority in human history. Do you realize that? Our world is created and structured in a way where you'll be told what matters most, what the good life is, is comfort and convenience and quiet. You will get lulled into believing that heaven and hell are not real. That there isn't a heaven, there isn't a hell, there isn't a sense of urgency, and there isn't a God who wants us to proclaim this to the world around us. So what is Paul trying to do? He's trying to wake up sleepy people People whose muscles have atrophied in sharing good news to saying, look at the spiritual realities around you, not just at the circumstances that you're living in. That hell is real. Forever is a long time. Sin kills and Jesus saves. This is what Paul's calling us to wake up to. For some of us, this is our smelling salt moment that we would wake up. Now, I know for some of you, this might create a little bit of a tension inside you. We're saying that God prepares the way for these moments, that we pray to God for these moments. Only God can save. And this is what, around Stonegate, we often just speak of as, as big God theology, that God is sovereign, that God is mighty to save, that salvation is his alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And then also at the same time, we're seeing that, that there, are, there are opportunities for us to seize. There are moments for us to step into. What do you do with that supposed tension. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I love how he put this, he was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And here's what he said. He said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Friends, yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. And St. Augustine, he put it this way, without God, we cannot, and without us, he will not. So friends, if you want me to explain to you why God would use us for his mission, for his purpose, and for the good news of the gospel to go forward, I can't. You know, there are times where I actually wonder, I'm like, God, do you realize how ineffective I am? Do you realize how feeble I am? Do you realize how inconsistent I am? but yet I am the means, you are the means, you are the hands and feet of Jesus to bring good news to the people in the world around you. And it should actually cause us to pause and have a sense of awe and wonder that God, you would use us? God, I realize there'd be much more effective ways for you to get the good news of the gospel to the world around us, but he's like saying, no, I'm, I'm sending you guys. You're my good news ambassadors, you're my missionaries, you're my people, and I'm sending you. So God chooses to use us. We are his means of declaring the mysteries of Christ to a world that needs to know the good news of Jesus. So here's the truth, church. God cultivates that soil. God is cultivating those moments in my life, in your life right now. He's going before us. He's opening doors. And what do we do? Well, like any good deal, when that moment comes, you've gotta be ready to buy the moment. It's exactly what Paul says in verse five. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let me focus in on first the second half of that sentence of that verse, making the best use of your time. The word time there is the Greek word keros. 
And Paul is sending an emphatic and an important message to us in using the word keros. There's other Greek words for time. He could have used the word chronos, which is really just the sense of literal time, the passage of time, the way we often think about time. Keros is actually meant to refer to and signify a specific moment, a strategic moment, an opportune moment, a moment that is fleeting, a moment that is here and, and eventually it will be gone. He's saying there's, there's a moment, there's a moment and you're walking with outsiders. It's, it's not forever. There, it can be a fleeting reality. And the verb there that he uses for saying that make the best use of time, some of the other translations translate it this way. Making the most of every opportunity. So saying you're looking at opportunities and you're trying to capitalize or, or as the American Standard Bible says, redeeming the time. The verb has the sense of, of to buy up, to buy thoroughly to buy almost in an enthusiastic and greedy way. That when the moment comes, that when you have this keros opportunity, when you have this moment, you're gonna buy it. You're gonna buy it. You're not gonna squander it, you're not gonna let it go, but you're rather gonna buy it up. See friends, there are windows of opportunity in all of our lives. And we often think about how they apply to our lives. Maybe a person that we dated or we didn't date or when we got married, there was a window of opportunity, right? And you had to strike while the iron was hot. Or some of you have thought about your careers and it's like, I've got a window of opportunity to move up the ladder, to take this promotion or to go to this school or whatever it is. There's a window of opportunity. Or maybe some of you have thought about it in, in, in your investment side of things or real estate. Real estate's crazy around here right now. It's like all these windows of opportunity. You've got to strike while the iron's hot. You've got to be ready to buy it up because there's a moment and that moment can be fleeting. Paul wants us to remember that there are times that are different than other times. And in your relationships, in these moments that God has cultivated, in these moments where God has opened the doors for you to declare the gospel, these moments can be fleeting. And then the question really becomes, what will you do at that moment? Will you squander it or will you buy it up? You know, the same way maybe some of us are like checking our stock portfolio and we're watching every ticker of the symbol and we're just ready to buy it up. Do you have that same attentiveness? Do you have that same preoccupation when you're looking at the opportunities the Lord has given you to declare the mysteries of Christ and to share the gospel with the people around you? Are you going to squander those moments? You know, I think about all sorts of moments where I've had to share the gospel in my 20 years of being a Christian. Roommates I've had, I had to buy up that moment. It wasn't forever, thank God. Um, <clears throat> um, friendships I've had, places I've worked, uh, places I've lived, I've had to decide, am I gonna buy up that moment? Because that moment won't last forever. The, the neighbor you have right now that you're thinking, gosh, I've lived next to him for about 11 months and now it's starting to get awkward. We've never talked, all that. Like, there's a moment. You're thinking about a moment. Buy it. Bake some cookies today. I don't know, or whatever you do that feels neighborly. And, and take it over there. Go buy the moment. You don't know how long they'll be your neighbor. Or that person that works next to you and you're thinking, gosh, should I talk to him about Jesus? Should I, should I share my faith? Should I do that? Buy it. Buy the moment. Buy it up. Buy the opportunity. Paul's saying that we think about all the great investments and you can hop on eBay and hit the buy it now button a million times and think that you've done something great. But in the grand scheme of things, the things that will matter the most are the moments you bought up to share the good news of the gospel. Those are the moments that will matter. So what are you buying up with your life? Paul gives such an incredible example of this. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. And Acts is, 
It's just amazing to read. Um, Acts 21, Paul is uh, at the temple, and once again, he begins preaching, and, and some of the leaders get really uh, upset by his message. So they come, and, and they, they start like a riot. They incite a riot against Paul. They start telling all sorts of lies about what he thinks and what he believes and all that stuff. And the whole city is worked into a frenzy. And, and then they, they begin beating him. Paul's just taking a beating. And the Roman guards eventually intervene because they just don't want things to get too out of control. So they come in, and as Paul's getting beaten, beaten. They say, we're now going to arrest him. And they're beginning to drag him off to jail. And as he's being drug off to jail, put yourself in that moment. What would you be thinking? You just, you know, you got lied about. People started a riot to shut you up and then they beat you. And now they're arresting you. You'd probably be thinking like a Christian Eeyore going like, woe is me. I can't believe this happened. I tried to be faithful and look what it got me. And, you know, and, and here's what Paul does. Paul does instead. He's, he's getting drug off by this Roman soldier and he goes, Hey, hey, excuse me, excuse me. And the, the guard goes, oh, you speak Greek. And he's like, yeah, I speak Greek. I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. And, and then the Roman soldier goes, oh, okay. And then Paul, he buys a moment. He buys one of the most amazing moments. In fact, we capture it in scripture. He buys up a moment and he says to the Roman guard, hey, before you take me to jail, can I just preach a sermon? And the guard's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so Paul gets up and he's like, I know I'm on my way to jail and you guys just got done beating me, but let's have sermon time. And he preaches a sermon and it's amazing. He buys a moment because he's not set on his circumstances. He's set on his message. And Paul's buying a moment. He's seizing a moment. That's chaos. He's making the most of the opportunity that's put in front of him. And so how do we buy these moments though? Well, there's two things I want to say about how we buy these moments. Okay, one is we walk with wisdom, as verse 5 also tells us at the front end. We walk with wisdom. Let me uh, contrast this really quick with what it looks like to, to walk um, without wisdom. See, the wise life, if the wise life, if the, the life filled with a sense of wisdom is making the most of every moment, of buying up these moments, it would be safe to assume that the unwise life would be an unintentional, unwatched uh, in some ways, almost chaotic or accidental life, a life that drifts, a life that is reactive to the circumstances around you, that follows every opportunity that comes in front of you, that listens to the messages of the culture around you, and it leaves you feeling frantic, without any margin, burnt out, and tired. It also, it's, it's like a shiny object. It gets you to focus on what the world tells you you should be preoccupied by. Hey, get preoccupied by how you look, by your fitness, by your bank account, by your stuff, by your retirement, by your job, by your education. All these things, these are the moments you should be buying. And Paul's over here begging and going, no, no. Buy these moments. Buy these moments. Buy these moments to share good news, to see lives changed. Um, I have found that there is a, a real big difficulty in being preoccupied and buying up and making your life center around buying up stuff and buying moments. Eventually, the pull and the allure of buying stuff eventually suffocates and drowns out seeing those spiritual realities going on around you. You and I, uh, in order to live a wise life, to have the resources, and the resources often to buy up the moment the resources is a little bit more margin. Sometimes an ability to pay attention to the things going on around you. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, I'll raise my hand as confession time, have ever been a distracted parent? I've, that's been me, I've had kids, I've just been distracted and I'm missing moments. I'm not buying moments that altogether oftentimes feel tedious to me, 
but I know 10 years from now will be altogether sacred and precious. And I'm, I pray all the time, Lord, allow me to buy the moments that I should buy. Give me the ability to, to have the right perspective that I would see those moments rather than what I often feel in my flesh. One of the primary spiritual disciplines I think a lot of us need to engage in, not just one time, but ongoing and regularly, is to ruthlessly, and I'm using that word intentionally, ruthlessly, root out busyness. Ruthlessly root out busyness. For some of us in this room, the reason we cannot buy the moment is because we are blinded to it by all of our busyness. Our busyness has made it impossible for us to stop and actually see the moment that might be waiting for us. And so what it's going to take for a lot of us, if I'm just going to be really practical, is you need to look at your calendar going into this fall and say, maybe there's a few things that need to come off so that I can see my neighbor, so that I can see that family, so that I can be present in my community, so that I can be with my group of people and have an opportunity to be discipled. Maybe I need to say no to that group or that organization or that, 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 that school board. I'm not picking on the school board, but any outside, you know what I mean. Or maybe I'm going to touch a real big third rail. How about even like instead of like 18 youth sports, maybe just one? You know, buy yourself a little bit of margin again. Just, some, just something to pray about. Don't, don't shoot the messenger. <clears throat> but just that, that idea that we're going we're gonna to create an intentional life that centers and preoccupies us with looking for the moments that Jesus has cultivated for us to declare the mysteries of Christ, that we would be in position to buy them, that we would have intentionality, that we would have attentiveness. You know, we often think the opposite of love is hate, and that's true in some sense. But the opposite of love is also neglect. Thomas Merton, he famously said, the first act of love is the pain of attention. That I'm able to see you and you're able to see me. And I can truly see you, not just in a, a placating way, uh-huh, 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 okay, okay, when are you gonna go? Okay, on to my next thing, uh, not that, but I, tr I, I see you and I can buy this moment. The first act of love is the pain of attention. And you can talk to children that were raised in homes filled with hate and abuse, but also kids that were raised in homes where there was massive neglect. And still it leads to a similar result. So what do you need to remove in your life to buy the moments that the Lord has cultivated in opening the doors for you to step into right now? Okay, and the second resource we need to buy these moments is we need to walk in wisdom by salty living by salty living. Verse six says this, it says, let your speech also always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is, is taking the example of language and how important our communication and conversation and language is, but he's also expanding it out and he's wanting us to see the broader biblical imagery of salt, that salt is altogether something distinct. And he's saying, this is gonna be the way that you buy a lot of these moments with your salty living, with your gracious speech. And if I can give one application that, is in, uh, that I feel is pretty relevant to, to our time, I often think about the way we interact online and just who we become online. You know, sometimes the things we'll say or write or type or the tone in which we'll do that, is it gracious? Is it seasoned with salt? Is there something distinctive about it? You know, uh, they interview people who uh, suffer from severe road rage 
And they often ask that person, what's going through your mind in that moment of road rage as you're, you're, you're just losing your cool? And they say, well, more than anything else, they forget that there's a person in the vehicle and all they see is the vehicle. So instead of realizing there's a po- person in that Ford F-150, you just see an F-150 and it becomes an object, an object that you want to destroy. And often we can do that in our communication too online. Instead of realizing there's a person on the other side of the computer, that there's a person on the other side of that social media account, we just think there's someone to be destroyed or we think there's someone to be owned or someone who needs to get wrecked. Or we watch these videos where we think that as long as we win an argument, that that's all that matters. And I would argue, friends, that if you win an argument but you lose the person, you've both lost. And so as Christians, what are we going to do? Are we going to remember the humanity, the image bearers that are on the other side of our interactions and conversations and think and temper ourselves with a sense of wisdom and graciousness that if I would not say this to their face, why should I type it online? And particularly in the church, in the church we'll often forsake what Jesus has bought for us, our unity on small and oftentimes trivial things. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians 5, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So church, our, our unity, our gracious speech is a way we buy those moments with a watching world. Francis Schaeffer said, and he was an apologist from the 1970s, he said, the final apologetic to a lost and watching world is love. How we'll love one another. So if we don't love one another, what together is altogether distinct or salty or different about us? How can we look at the world around us and say we truly met the risen God when we act just like the world we're trying to reach? And last thing I want to just encourage all of us in is don't trade what is most pressing for what's most precious. Don't trade what's most pressing for what's most precious. You know, there's been times where I've read the Gospels and I often thought to myself, I'm like, man, I wish Jesus would have said a little bit more about economics or just war theory or whatever subject you're interested in. You just wish he would have said a little bit more. And the thing about Jesus is Jesus was, was, was buying a moment. That's why he frequently, and we want to see Jesus in the sermon series, so think about this about Jesus. That's why he was, he was relentlessly focused and he would often say the phrase, my hour has not come, because what he's saying is there's a moment, there's a kairos coming that I'm here to buy that moment. And I'm not going to trade what's most pressing for what's most precious. You know, in fact, that would often be the thing that would make people disillusioned and frustrated with Jesus. Judas got very frustrated with Jesus because Jesus refused to trade what was most precious, which was redeeming the world and the good news of the gospel. And Judas wanted him to trade it for political grandstanding and accomplishments. And am I saying don't have political discussions and cultural issues don't matter? No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that as a church and as a people, we need to live in light of first things first, of what is of the utmost importance. And what is of the utmost importance to me, to you, to Stonegate Church, and if you call yourself a Christian, is the precious good news of the gospel. And that we would buy those moments as the Lord opens doors for us to do so. And notice about this too. Jesus is saying there's so much about our language. And I just want to give you a few uh, questions to ask yourself, a little bit of a grid as you think about your language. Um, And these will come up on the screen. Are these words gracious? 
when you're speaking to someone, is it filled with a sense of grace, like I actually like you, I love you, I'm not here to win an argument, I'm here to destroy you? Are your words seasoned with salt? Do they stand different and sound different than the rest of the world? Are these words building up the church for good? Or are they tearing down and criticizing the church? There's a big difference between a critical eye that wants to make something better and a critical spirit that just wants to tear it apart. Are these words giving grace to those who hear them? Are you assuming the best or are you thinking this person's the worst? Are these words fitting and appropriate? And are these words true and are they spoken in love? And friends, let me just say, whether this applies to gospel conversations or marriage or any relationship, not everything that's true needs to be said, but everything that's said needs to be true. And so what that means is you don't have to share how you feel about everything all the time. Uh, let that be liberating for you. You don't have to get on social media and give your opinion about every event, every news article, every situation, every story, because not everything that you feel or everything that you think is true needs to be said. Rather, everything that's said needs to be true. And wisdom is knowing the discretion of what needs to be said and when it needs to be said. <clears throat> and Paul expands this a little bit more, and we'll land the plane here, by saying he wants to exhort us toward this, this salty, distinct sense Salty living, if you will. And salty, saltiness is really just an image. It's a metaphor that's used throughout the New Testament, and particularly even by Jesus, to, to describe the, the Beatitudes in shorthand. The Beatitudes in the sense of like, what does it look like to live distinct from the world? That is, you and I want to live a distinct life that the world looks at and says, that's making me thirsty because that's what salt's supposed to do. And something that's thirsty, something that's thirsty is meant to get our attention that's meant to say, I, I, I need to be satisfied. Now I have a thirst that needs to be quenched. And Jesus, even in the Beatitudes, and I'll share this with you as we, we close, he, he, he prays for you and I. He offers a blessing. He says, a happy life awaits all of you. Stonegate Church, Stonegate Church right now in 2021, Jesus is saying, a happy life awaits you if you're willing to proclaim the mysteries of Christ to the world around you, to those people that are around you right now. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't give in to fear. Don't let that muscle atrophy. Don't give up. Pray for boldness. And if you do, on that day of eternity, when you see Jesus face to face, so what Jesus says, even if it doesn't go well, he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before me, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. So church, if we're not going to live in a distinct way, if we're not going to create the margin to buy those moments when the Lord brings them our way, then who will? This is the message of the church. This is the mission of the church. This is why Stonegate Church exists. This is Jesus' church. And the reason he brought us into existence is so that we would not forsake what is most pressing for what's most precious. And what's most precious is that the good news of the gospel goes forward and the world knows that there's a God who loves them, that there's reconciliation, that there's redemption, and that there's hope. And that sin is not the end of the story. That death does not have to be the last word. That brokenness does not have to be the end of anyone's reality. So Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. You and I, friends, this isn't a have to. This is a get to. We get to buy the moment. We get 
to live lives that create margin, that create space. So when those moments come, we can buy them. We can buy them with greed. We can buy them with eagerness. We can buy them with earnestness. Like I'm buying all the moments I can to tell people about Jesus. Even when it doesn't go the way we think it will. You know, years ago, I was on a plane um, and, and just got on. I was in the middle seat, which, you know, that was already, I wasn't sure if the Lord loved me that day. But I'm in the middle seat and uh, this lady, she comes on. She's in her 50s, business looking lady, really professional. And she's got her Bose uh, uh, headphones around her neck and she sits down and I'm reading a book already. And uh, she just, you know, I think she was like, hey, let's see if we can make conversation. She says to me, what are you reading? And I was like, well, this is going to be a layup. And uh, I just say, I'm reading a book called Jesus and the Gospels. That was literally the title of the book. And as soon as I said that, uh, you could have like, I mean, her temperature just turned to like Antarctica. She was like, hmm, okay. And it just got really cold between us. And, and, and then I was like, you know, what should I do? Lord, should I, should I say something? Should I try to expand the conversation? Should I, should I buy this moment? I felt a sense of conviction of like, try. Just buy this moment. Maybe the Lord's cultivated it. Maybe he's prepared it. Who knows? And so I step into that moment. I just say to her a very open question. I say, hey, what, do you want to tell me what you think of Jesus? And she looks at me and she just very politely goes, no, thank you. And she puts on her headphones and that's the end of the story. So I know you thought it was going to have a great, it didn't, it didn't. But the reason I share that with you is because that was still a moment. That was a moment where I was listening to the Lord. I didn't know exactly how it would end, but I wanted to be faithful. And there are moments right now, and at Stonegate we talk a lot about just this idea of who's your one, who's the Lord placed you near, who's the Lord giving you relationship with, that you can buy that moment. Maybe there's someone right now today that, that is, as we've been in service, you're thinking, I need to call them, I need to pray for them, I need to reach out to them. Maybe when you leave church today, you call them and you buy that moment. You share good news with them. And I don't know what the outcome will be, but this brings us all the way back to verse two. Let's have a sense of anticipation and expectancy and awe that if God can raise you from the dead, if God can create the heavens and earth, then surely he's mighty to save. And that you and I, we get to come along with him on this adventure, on this journey of buying moments, moments that will matter long into eternity. And what would it look like, Stonegate, if for the next couple of decades, we just gave ourselves to buying moments, buying up all the moments we could that matter to declare the mysteries of Christ with the people the Lord has sovereignly positioned us around and doors that he has opened. Imagine the revival that would break out in our community. Imagine the life change that's waiting in your neighborhood. Imagine the people in your family that are going to meet Jesus. Imagine the baptism services we will have at Stonegate where we'll have to go three hours because we've got that many people to dunk. Imagine that. Won't he do it, church? Won't he do it? Let's pray. God, would you make us people of prayer? People that pray with a, a renewed sense of, of anticipation and expectancy and hope. God, would you make us people then that would, would, would pray for open doors, doors to open up, that we would get to share the good news of the gospel with people around us. And Lord, I, I pray particularly for those in the room this morning who are not followers of you, who don't know you, or are sitting here going, this, this is new. 
And I, I just, Lord, I'm praying right now you would have them buy this moment, that they would buy it up with all of their lives, that they would realize this is the greatest moment they could ever buy. This is the greatest deal they will ever get. A God who loves them, a father who wants to adopt them, one who's paid for all of their sin, who's taken all of their wrath, who's taken all of their shame and given them all of his righteousness. And so God, would you make us people that don't trade what's most pressing from what's most precious? that you would keep us single-minded and fixed upon your glory, that we would spend all of our lives to our last breaths, hoping, stepping into, buying moments that are filled with gracious speech and that are seasoned with beatitude lives that reflect the God that has saved us and wants to save so many more. Pray that in your name, amen.